Five, four, three, two, one. Let's go. Diary of a Kidney Warrior podcast in partnership with Kidney Care UK, sharing faith, knowledge, hope, and love. Hi, and welcome to Diary of a Kidney Warrior podcast. My name is Dee Moore, and I am a kidney warrior. This podcast is dedicated to encourage, educate, and inspire as we explore all aspects of kidney disease, related chronic illnesses, and health. If you have any questions or ideas for topics you would like me to cover, please get in contact with me on social media using the handle Diary of a Kidney Warrior. In today's episode, I'm bringing you a kidney warrior story. Now there's always something you can learn from someone's story, something that can bring inspiration and hope. My guest today from Los Angeles, California, USA is chef and jazz vocalist Dion Bullard. Dion joins me to share his inspirational kidney warrior story and the lessons he has learned along his kidney warrior journey. Hi, and welcome to Diary of a Kidney Warrior podcast. How are you doing today, Dion? I am awesome, Dee. Thank you for having me. And thank you for joining me. Today, we're recording a Kidney Warrior story. And you know what I'm going to say, everyone. I love recording Kidney Warrior stories because I do believe that we learn so much from listening to a person's lived experience. When you've been there, done that, worn the T-shirt, who better to learn the highs, the lows, the ins and outs of what the reality is, what the real life experience is of living with chronic kidney disease. So, yeah, I'm really excited to hear about your story. So uh, welcome again. Thank you. Thank you. I'm really excited about sharing my story with your audience. So I'm going to kick off with my first question. And my first question is, how did your kidney warrior journey begin and how were you diagnosed? I was diagnosed on January 5th, 2005. I remember that date very specifically because I had been traveling and then I, I wasn't feeling well. I went to my mom's house, as I often did when I was not feeling well. I turned into a big baby when I'm not feeling well. And I was asleep. I was laying around. I was very lethargic. And that set off all the bells and all the the alarms in my mom's head. And she came to the door and she said, hey, are you feeling okay?" And I said, sure, I'm fine. You know, trying not to be mothered at that moment. And she said, well, if you're fine, get up and walk over here. I guess it was her motherly intuition that knew that something was drastically wrong. And so me, in defiance of her request, I jump up and I take a step and I immediately fell down. And she said, you need to go to the hospital immediately. I went to the hospital and I was within an hour, I was diagnosed with ESRD, which is end stage renal disease. And I needed to undergo emergency dialysis. And that started an 18-year journey that culminated this May with a kidney transplant. Wow. So what we say over here in England is that you were a crash lander. Yeah. It must have been a shock to literally go from living your normal life in speech marks, but living your normal life and then immediately finding out that you're in end-stage renal failure and then immediately starting dialysis. So what was that like for you? What was going through your mind at that time? 
it was it was sobering to say the least i my immediate reaction was shock naturally and alarm and then it just became the idea just washed over me that i needed to it was something that i was going to have to do and i immediately called my family and my mom and we started to discuss it and she said well you know it's going to be your new normal things are going to change drastically and it was an adjustment over the years but it became a part of my normal so how was your experience of dialysis so you immediately so day 1 of your journey you had emergency dialysis but what was life on dialysis like for you it was a huge culture shock because as you said i go from you know traveling and having ultimate freedom of doing whatever i wanted to do every day you know working and cooking and well actually i hadn't started really started cooking yet actually but just living my life in a way that was normal for me at that moment and so entering and beginning dialysis it was like what is going on i'm in this room full of people for at that point in time it was 3 hours a day and when it started and it ultimately got to four and a half hours a, three times a week. And so, but I can honestly say that for me, I never saw it as dismal. I just accepted it as something that I needed to do. And I, over time, I gained an appreciation for it and became grateful for it, the opportunity because I recognized it as a life-sustaining necessity. And so I won't go as far as to say I enjoyed going <laughs> because I don't think I ever really enjoyed going. I just didn't see it as daunting. You know, I just learned to adjust my life in a way that I could still have a certain quality of life all the while doing the things that were absolutely necessary to keep me healthy in the moment. So you talked about acceptance and you said that you saw it as being a life-sustaining necessity. What helped you get to that point mentally? Because to get such a sudden diagnosis and then get to the point of acceptance, some people can really struggle with that process. And it's very much a, a grieving process for a lot mm -hmm. of people. So what helped you get to that point of acceptance and seeing it in that way? I think that for me, my mother, she developed breast cancer probably when I was 11 or 12 years old. And I think her example of, and she just passed away in 2019, but I think subconsciously seeing how she handled it and seeing her level of resilience just made me subconsciously understand that things happen and it's not what happens to you, it's how you respond to it. And I think that her example and watching her live her life every day in a way that she was intentional about finding joy and being passionate about things, I think that's what, I think it came kind of natural to me. Um, I like that you said, there's a grieving process that happens. I think I never really grieved my life before dialysis. I just immediately, maybe it was a coping mechanism. Maybe I 
was suppressing the negative emotion and feeling because I don't want to be insensitive to other people's experience. And I, and I know that some people don't just, you know, get over it. You know what I mean? But I think maybe for me, I was focused on getting through each day and not really fully absorbing the magnitude of what was happening. Yeah, I, I guess for me, I just, I just intentionally did not have a negative attachment or association with going. It was probably, like I said, a coping mechanism in some way, because I recognized that that was just something that I just absolutely had to do. That's how I approach most things, I believe. I try not to over worry about certain things, about anything, really, because I feel my philosophy is worrying won't get it done, <laughs> you know? So I just approached being on dialysis, you know, with a certain level of gratitude. And I think that's what really helped me, honestly. I think having that mindset is so important and is the difference that makes the difference. It doesn't necessarily change your situation, but it certainly changes how you feel about it. Absolutely. So um, I really do support and endorse having that positive mindset. But rewinding back slightly, obviously your journey started with you crash landing into dialysis. But in reflection, when you look back, now that you know about kidney disease and the symptoms of kidney disease, when you look back, can you think of the signs and symptoms that you did have that now you know is to do with CKD? Absolutely. It was extreme weight loss. Appetite was virtually non-existent. And as a person who, you know, had naturally a chubby kid, of course, I was excited about losing a few pounds. And so, and I was like, oh, my clothes fit. I can go into the back of the closet. And so not really focusing on or really, really noticing how more increasingly tired I was becoming. And then one day my best friend said, do you realize how much weight you've lost out of concern? And I said, well, no, you know, I, you know, I, I haven't really been. I've been really trying to not eat so much. And then later on that night, I went home and I looked at myself, really looked at myself in the mirror. And I noticed how extreme the weight loss was. And then I really started to pay attention to, it wasn't just that I was intentionally changing the way I ate. I didn't have an appetite. And over a period of a few weeks, my health began to decline more rapidly. And I was extremely lethargic and tired and sleeping more and more. And at that time, I hadn't went to the doctor at all until, you know, you know, my body was literally, you know, gave out when I stood up that day. And so I think those are the major things that stick out in terms of awareness of what was happening. I didn't really know until I was, you know, obviously until I got to the hospital and, and was diagnosed with, you know, what it exactly was. But as I look back, as you said, those are the things that immediately stuck out to me the most. I think it's very easy, like you said, especially if you have a few pounds to lose that you think, oh, yeah, this is this is great. I'm losing weight. And sometimes it's easy to look past these kind of symptoms because it might be something that you actually do want. So you want to lose a few pounds. You're not feeling right. hungry. This is great. But right. not realizing that actually this is symptomatic of something very serious. And something so, is terribly wrong. Yeah, absolutely. So for someone listening who 
is experiencing symptoms and is maybe saying, oh, I'll be all right or putting it off for whatever reason. Or like I said, somebody who actually does want to lose weight and is going through this and is losing weight as a result of it. So ignoring them because they're seemingly getting some kind Mm -hmm. of short term benefit. Right. What advice would you have for that person? I would say that pay attention to your body. Your body will always tell you or try to tell you what is happening or that something is happening in either way. And and a good baseline, you don't know how good you feel until you feel bad, you know, and you don't know how bad you feel until you feel better. <laughs> you felt until you feel better. I like that. And so I would say be diligent and intentional about paying attention to your body. I think that is one thing that I've learned throughout this entire journey is pay attention to how you feel, because that way you can always be your own best advocate. Absolutely. Your body does speak to you. Your body does tell you when something's wrong. And it is so important to listen and listen quickly, because let's face it, the earlier the intervention, the more that can be done. So absolutely great advice. Speaking more about your dialysis journey, so you increased from three to four hours worth of dialysis each session. So what benefit did you get from the dialysis? Well, for those who don't know actually what dialysis actually does, the dialysis machine is basically an external kidney. It does what your natural kidneys or inside your body can't do. So the process is is fairly basic. It, you know, without being too graphic, your blood comes out of your body, goes into the machine, it gets cleaned. And the process of separating the poison or the waste from your blood in the, in the fluid, excess fluid, it cleans it, does it all, washes it, puts it back into your body. Some of the things that you immediately recognize is weight loss <laughs> because your body is holding that extra fluid. So you lose a few pounds. I believe it's something like a kilo is equal to 2.2 pounds. And so if you have four kilos, that's over eight and a half, maybe nine pounds of extra fluid. And so you see immediate weight loss. And so of course, you know me, like I said, anything that loses a couple of pounds I'm excited about <laughs> Me too. but <I'll, laughs> but also you also notice with the cleaned fresh refreshed blood in your body you actually have a different level of energy well immediately after dialysis some people are a little more tired and then you rest and then you feel a lot better but the clean blood going into your body overall refreshes you you know the immediate benefit is you have a little more energy, you're a lot more alive, and you just, you feel better after dialysis. What were the challenges that you faced when you were on dialysis? I'm actually currently still on dialysis, but it's been reduced down to two days a week. But over the years, the major things have been access site infections, which could be a problem if the technicians and you aren't being diligent about making sure the access stays sterile and and those things are very normal you know those small infections are very normal just sometimes if you learning what your body can tolerate 
and what is necessary for your actual experience on dialysis, how much fluid to take. If you take too much fluid, your body can be dehydrated and you can cramp. And dialysis cramps are no joke and no fun. <laughs> and so um, they're extremely painful. And so over time, you and working with the technicians, you develop a relationship with them. And then they kind of know when you come in, you get weighed. And so the process is like you get weighed and then you can, based on what you left at on your last treatment and what you came back at, the weight you came back at, you can pretty much determine how much excess fluid your body is holding. And then at that point, you can determine how much fluid is necessary to remove. You don't want to be too dry, as they call it, because that will cause cramping. But over time, you develop a better gauge or a better way to gauge what's necessary in that moment. But those are the things that that really stand out. Those are the major things that have happened over the years. Yeah, and, uh, access issues infections can you know have you hospitalized and stuff like that but those cases are not very common but they do happen so you mentioned that you had access issues is that in terms of your veins right so it depends on what your actually access point is or the type of access you have you can have a fistula which uses your natural veins and makes the connection remove the blood going to the machine or you can have a catheter, which is two tubes, one to take the blood out and one to return the blood. Or you can have a graft, which is apparatus that is put like a, a synthetic vein of some sort that goes into you. And then it, it gets stuck, you know, with the needles in order to remove, extract and to return the blood. So it really just depends on what your body requires and what you need in the moment. And those things are assessed by the surgeons and the doctors and that stuff in that moment. But anytime you are pricking your skin with a needle, there is the potential for infection because even though you may have showered and your, your skin may be clean, just the natural bacteria on your skin sometimes going into that space can create those levels of infection. What's necessary for you and your body, you know, once again gets determined by your medical providers. For me, I started with my left arm and it had a fistula on my left arm. And I had that for about, as I said, I was, I've been on dialysis to, at this point, 18 years. But when I first began, I had my fistula on my left upper arm and I had that fistula for about eight years, eight or nine years, and it became infected. And so when it became infected, I knew it was infected because my arm began to swell like four times its size. And so that's an immediate reaction to infection. And so that's a way that you notice that something is happening. It really wasn't painful, but it just began to swell. And then there was some sort of discharge in the area, you know. So when the first fistula became infected, we knew that we had to start the process all over again in my right arm. But in the meantime, I had to get a catheter in my neck, in my jugular, so that I could continue my dialysis treatments until the fistula in my arm was healed and ready for use. That fistula, once it, once it was healed, we used it for about three months and it became infected. <laughs> and so after it became infected, so now I'm all out of arms. So what do you do? And so we moved over to my upper right thigh, 
and into that, I believe it's called the femoral artery. There was a graft placed in my upper thigh that was basically a loop. And it was the end of it was inside the artery in my growing. And they stuck the, you know, in two areas, same way they would do in your arm. One needle, the red needle would be for the extraction of the blood. And then the blue, the blue side would be the return of the cleaned blood. And so I've had that, I've had that in my upper left thigh now for about the last five or six years. That is incredible. So your first fistula stopped working, went to the second fistula. So effectively not having access for dialysis in either arm. So that must have been really frightening. But then finding the access through your thigh, that must have been a really tough time. How was that for you, getting your mind around that? I think I became a little nervous because at this point I'm running out of appendages, (laughs) you know. And so they explained to me that, you know, if something happens there, then the only thing we can do is, oh, and so let me add, let me go back just a little bit. So all the time through these different opportunistic infections, I had to have temporary catheters placed. And so in having so many temporary catheters placed in the, you know, the main arteries in your neck, what ends up happening is they begin to shrink and begin to collapse. And then they become extremely dangerous, even trying to apply. You can bleed to death or in some cases you can't access those arteries at all. And so it becomes pretty dangerous. And so they had to get creative. And so when they moved over to my upper thigh, it was not lost on me that, you know, transplant is absolutely necessary. You know, it's becoming increasingly more necessary. And so wrapping my head around, okay, technically I have one more leg left in case if something really goes drastically wrong with my left leg, the only other place to go is my right upper thigh because my arms are are, of no use, no longer able to be used. And so I think at that point was a little, a little scary, I think. But once again, I had to say, okay, well, I'm in the best place. I'm doing all the things that are necessary to do. I'm going to see the doctors. And so I became Over the years, I became, I learned how to become my own best advocate. Like I mentioned earlier, I learned what questions to ask and I learned what things I could do to help support the dialysis technicians in making sure that my access sites were properly cleaned and properly protected so that I didn't gain infections and stuff like that. And so, so, you know, I kick into problem solving mode. What can I do? Because I realized that it was my body and that I was in control, I should have some control and some ownership as to what happens. It's necessary to listen to the doctors and the technicians, but if I'm paying attention and I'm noticing what's happening or something is being done incorrectly, I learned my best use of time would be doing what I could do to help facilitate a healthy experience. A lot to learn very quickly and in a short space of time. That must have been really frightening, but again, your mental attitude towards it, I'm sure, helped your situation, even though it was really, really tough. Absolutely. Learning how to effectively communicate with medical providers, I think, is the most important takeaway, I think, in the entire process is 
unless I can be completely healed and don't have to do dialysis or deal with excesses or anything like that at all, it would be awesome. But if that's not an option, the best thing that I can do is learn how to communicate with my medical provider so that I can receive the best care and advocate for myself. And so I learned that pretty quickly that that was going to be tantamount to my success and to my overall, you know, health success. So you mentioned at this point about transplantation. So did you not consider transplantation before or was it just at this time that you started to think about it? And if so, why was it only at this point that you considered transplantation? Over the years, initially, when I first entered into the world of dialysis, kidney dialysis, the option was presented to me, but I was really uneducated. I didn't really know a lot about what was needed or what was necessary. I knew that, obviously, I needed a transplant because they told me that the day I was diagnosed. I did have enough foresight to ask that question that day. Will I need, what does this mean? Well, you're going to be on dialysis. I said, so will I have to be on dialysis the rest of my life? And they said, well, yeah, until you get a kidney transplant. So that's how I knew that I needed a kidney transplant that day. But over the, you know, the first few years, I think I started once the orientation at UCLA because I really didn't know how the process worked and how transplantation worked and how the things about the lists and how you get on the list and the process and all of that, I didn't really know. And so at that time, the process for orientation took a, a number of days. And I think that was really overwhelming. And so before all the infections and stuff began, I was, for all intents and purposes, doing pretty well on dialysis. I, you know, wasn't having any real problems and having any real issues. And then as I began to meet people at the clinic that I was going to and to have conversations, people who had been on dialysis for a number of years and began to talk to them, I got a lot of misinformation. One of the major things was sometimes you're going to have more issues than not, or it's going to be worse for you if you get a transplant. And so I think that discouraged me from pursuing the transplant list early on in my journey. But over the years, as stuff started to happen and I began to, you know, intentionally educate myself, I learned that everybody's experience is totally different. While everybody's experience is absolutely valid, that doesn't have to be my experience. And it may not be my experience. It may be the most wonderful thing that has ever happened to me. And so it wasn't until just this past October, 18 years in, that I decided that it was probably time that I actually took another look at potential transplant. They told me in, in the beginning that my life expectancy would probably be without transplant would probably be about eight years. And so here I am at 18 years and I'm going, well, first of all, thank you, God. And number two, <laughs> I don't want to push it. <laughs> so let's see, let's, 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 let's look at this transplant idea. And so at that point I was going to a wonderful hospital here in Los Angeles and and I had different doctors because I changed work. Oh, and so I might add the entire time I've been on dialysis, I've been working full time. And so I had to switch clinics to accommodate my work schedule, which turned out to be a wonderful thing because I got with doctors and healthcare providers in that area that just had a totally different approach to educating me and helping me facilitate the transition and really, really helping me focus 
and, and understanding the importance of making sure that my phosphorus was okay, that my potassium was in check and all of the labs and all of that kind of stuff that goes along with the day-to-day stuff was in check. And then I began to develop a different outlook. And so in October, I got on the transplant list at Cedars and they did a wonderful job at educating me and helping me through the process. And the process wasn't, wasn't very daunting at all. I guess in the time from the first time that I had my initial introduction to transplant up until today, they learned how to streamline the process a lot. And so it was really quick. So you went on to the transplant waiting list in October of 22. So how long was it before you got your transplant? So I ended up, the way the list works when you go into the waiting list is the amount of time that you've been on dialysis is considered waiting time from the, you know, retroactive. So that essentially meant that when I got on the transplant waiting list in October, I had 18 years of credit or 18 years of waiting time. And so it kind of put me into a different category and higher up on the list. And so they began to immediately get kidney offers for me. But because of my waiting time and my health history and that sort of thing, they wanted a very specific type of kidney for me. And so they declined a few. And honestly, I think that was the first time that I began to get a little discouraged because I'm going, I understand now the urgency of needing this transplant. I understand the urgency. And I began to get a little frustrated because I'm going, something was always happening. So in the process of me even being on the list, I was in the hospital for a week because I got an infection or in the hospital for two weeks and and then kidneys would come up and then I was in the hospital. So they're not going to transplant you while you are, while you have an infection, it has to, you know, has to go away and it has to heal. And so I began to be a little frustrated, but then, you know, then my overall outlook kicks in and then I go, well, you know what? I know that I'm in the right place. I know that I'm doing all the right things. And so I know that when I'm supposed to get this kidney, I'm going to get it and it's going to happen. And that's what happened. And on on Cinco de Mayo of this year, they called me and said, hey, everything looks great. We have a potential kidney coming up. We'll call you in a few hours. And they did. And so I went to the hospital. And so now I have two things to celebrate on Cinco de Mayo. So, (laughs) you know, I'll have a margarita for my new birthday. (laughs) It's wonderful to to have that celebration and Mm -hmm. have that freedom to live a healthy life from that point Mm -hmm. on. And so now that you've received that kidney and it's now been a few months since receiving it, how has life changed for you? Oh, wow. So... Initially, I had to still do dialysis three times a week because the kidney was slow to wake up. It's it's slowly waking up, which means it's not fully 100% functioning, but it is functioning. I'm able to, you know, when you, some people, when you're on dialysis for the amount of time that I was on, I've been on dialysis, you stop producing urine. Well, one of the immediate ways you know that the kidney is working is you immediately have to urinate. And so... My life has changed because I'm running to the bathroom every five minutes, (laughs) number one. And and I think, like I said, the day after, well, first of all, the experience. So the day that I got the surgery, I was excited 
and I go into the surgery and, you know, I do all the tests and I do all the stuff and they'd say, you're going to go in about 4 a.m. So I went in about 4 a.m. to the surgery room. When I woke up out of anesthesia, I had a breathing tube down my throat and I was restrained. So naturally, when you start to come out of sedation, you have something in your throat and you immediately want to go to grab it. So they're all around and then you have your arms, which is why your arms are restrained because they know that instinctively you're going to want to reach. And so after they calmed me down and I had to you know, go into my mind and say, okay, calm down. When I, when I had to focus on where I was, they, you know, the nurses and the doctor, the surgeon came in and kind of explained to me what I had experienced during the surgery what should have been a two hour procedure turned into seven hours because of all the extensive scar tissue and the clotting in my body because of the years of dialysis. That's one of the things that happens. Your body gains clots because your blood is constantly coming in and out of your body. So strange things happen to your body. And so everywhere he thought that he would make the attachment, I began to bleed uncontrollably. So I had to have blood transfusions and I was on a ventilator for 24 hours and sedated for 24 hours after the surgery. But the testament to the quality of care that I received at the hospital at Cedars-Sinai, after they took the tube, the breathing tube out of my throat, I had no soreness in my throat. I had no soreness, no pain in my body. And I was eating a turkey burger, which was unheard of, which was absolutely insane. When I tell people that story, they go, well, how you just were on a ventilator. And I was like, yeah. I know. <laughs> you know. I'm like, it's amazing to me. So the next day after transplant, they get you up and move around because they don't want, they want the, the incisions and the healing to be flexible. So they want you to move around. And so they said, you won't probably start making urine for another couple of weeks. I began to start making small amounts of urine two days after the surgery. That's incredible. Considering it's everything ab- that you went through. Absolutely. And so, that moment, like that, and I, I even feel a little emotional now talking about it. That moment, I remember sitting on the side of the hospital bed and, and I just began to sob uncontrollably because it really hit me. Number one, what I had experienced and it could have went totally another way. I mean, I didn't have to be there in that moment, but I've never felt so much gratitude. I was so grateful. I was so grateful for the staff that number one kept me alive, (laughs) first of all. And for the first time, I saw a level of hope down the road. Like at some point, I won't have to do dialysis at all anymore. And I'll be able to travel freely. And I can begin to think about all the things. And I think It was just a level of gratitude that came over me that day and it's continued to this day. And so I think in the hospital, I vowed to myself that I would live my life in a way that was a testament to that gratitude and honored that gratitude and showed that gratitude, but also live my life in a way that and do things that bring me joy and that I'm passionate about. I want to live a happy life, you know, a full life. And so And that means being aware of everything that life is. And so, you know, recording music and all that kind of stuff just 
and cooking food all the time and, and making, you know, having different culinary experiences. Like I only want to do things that serve a passionate, joyful life. And so I think that's what the kidney transplant did for me. It renewed my sense of joy and excitement and expectation for my life. And so I want to encourage people in that way, you know, to look at it or to try to find little spots of joy every day. It may not feel good that you're on dialysis or it may not feel good that you're dealing with doctors and stuff like that all the time. But if you can find those little pockets of joy every day, it can help the experience be a little more palatable, you know? Nice. So powerful. So, so very powerful. You mentioned earlier that you're still having dialysis two days per week. So even mm-hmm. after receiving the transplant, you're still having the dialysis. So is that going to continue or will you be hopefully able to stop that? Yeah, they're encouraged by my labs and stuff. The reason that I have to do dialysis, continue on dialysis for a little while is because the kidney is still somewhat asleep. So. The donor, I didn't have a living donor. I had a deceased kidney donor, which meant the person was passing away or had just recently passed away and their kidney was removed and then, you know, offered to me. Well, what happens is if you have a live donor, you're on the table, on on the surgery table, literally right next to the person that the kidney is coming out of. It comes out of that person literally and goes directly into you. You are in the room together, in the operating room together. That kidney is never asleep. That kidney comes from a living donor, which means that it's, it comes out of their body, goes into yours and immediately kicks in and returns to its normal function. If you have a deceased donor, when your body stops living, all of your organs shut down. That's a part of the, the death process, right? So your kidney completely shuts down. And when it goes into another body that had no kidney function or very limited kidney function, it has to basically kick in and go, oh, wait, and wake up. It's asleep. So it's essentially, so it has to go, oh, wait, I'm in a new body. There's new blood flow. There's actually, so let me wake up, right? And so while my kidney did do that, it's not operating at its full function right now. And so, but because my labs are going in the right direction, they were able to reduce a day and eventually they'll reduce another day or just, you know, take me completely off of dialysis altogether. But the major thing that they are looking at and looking for is the creatinine level. You know about that, right? My creatinine level, they wanted to be at around one or two, definitely below four. Mine right now is at five or six, sometimes fluctuating between five or six. When I first got the kidney, it was around 12, right? So it's going in the right direction. It just needs that extra, get get over that extra little hump and then I won't have to do dialysis again. And for people listening, obviously different countries have different practices when it comes to Uh living and deceased donation. So one country does things differently from another, but that is obviously your experience, dear. I'm right, bearing in right. mind for people listening, it might not be the same way in their country. Absolutely. And I would encourage people who may need kidney transplant to start to investigate what those procedures are and what those practices are in your relative country. I know that you're active on social media. And so for anyone that wants to follow you, 
What are your social media handles and website? So my website is dionbullard.com. It's D-I-O-N-E-B-U-L-L-A-R-D.com. That's my personal website. That's the hub for all things me. <laughs> uh, you can learn more about my story and my life. And, you know, there's other stuff on there and stuff that you could take a look around in pictures and stuff like that. But also my Facebook and my Instagram and my Twitter at Dion Buller, D-I-O-N-E. I think most of them are underscore B-U-L-L-A-R-D, but it's definitely my name. It's searchable for my name. If you see me on Facebook, my Facebook is actually my first name, middle name, last name. So it's Edward Chef Dion Bullard, but you can find me by typing in Dion Bullard. So we've looked at your journey, Dion, from starting back in 2005, being put immediately onto dialysis, looking at your dialysis journey, what you've learned through that, and then transplantation taking you through to today. What final word of encouragement and advice do you have for the listeners? I would say it's a few things. I would say pay attention to your body, what your body is telling you. Be diligent about your own care if you're currently undergoing any type of dialysis, kidney treatments or anything. It may be in beginning stages or you may be in the point at the place where you need transplant. Learn how to communicate effectively with the doctor so that you can be your own best advocate. And I think lastly, I would say, live your life with joy and passion. Do things that promote that because that will help sustain you in the moments where you're not feeling so good about it. You're not feeling well that day. But being able to reflect on those something or, or to, be, to participate in some activity or something that you know, brings you joy and, and that you're passionate about will help sustain you in the moments where that sometimes can be pretty dark or pretty low. And I always try to encourage people to let them know that as long as you are alive and as long as you, that you have breath and a little bit of strength, there's the potential to, for everything to get better. And there's always room to have a little hope. Thank you so much for joining me and for sharing your story, for sharing such amazing advice and also for being so open and so honest. I know that you, by sharing your story, will help so many people. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Diary of a Kidney Warrior podcast. And don't forget that you can contact me on social media using the handle Diary of a Kidney Warrior. Please do subscribe to the podcast and please do tell a friend. New episodes of this podcast are released every other Monday. Until next time, take care and choose to live. Diary of a Kidney Warrior, sharing faith, knowledge, hope, and love.